0: Hey there, everyone. This is Nicholas Ola, Duke Plastic Surgery resident. Uh, With The Resident Review, I'm here with my co-resident and co-host, Hannah Langdale. Today, we're continuing our Flapcast 2.0 series. I'm really excited about this one. We're gonna be talking about the paraspinous flap with Dr. Sam Poor from UW-Madison. Hannah, how's everything going?
1: Good. We've had a busy summer here at Duke. We had the flap course not too long ago, which was a lot of fun. It feels like, I mean, it had been years since we had gone to a flap course. So it was fun to see everyone. And I think everyone was really happy to be together and good dissections. So, are you at the course this year? I was. This was actually my, I mean, I'm a third year resident now, but this is my
0: first in person course, just the way things have shaken out since it started. So it, it was awesome. I I couldn't kind of believe the the faculty that was there and the amount of learning that kind of condensed into the the two and a half days or so. It was awesome.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm impressed by everyone's stamina. A very uh, robust social component too. But everyone was there, bright eyed in the morning. So it was uh, it was a fun weekend.
2: Yeah. And then we also time. had
1: the uh, the indie aesthetic meeting, which I wasn't able to to watch, but I think you were.
0: Yeah, so uh, this was a a really unique meeting. Um, For those of you that don't know, this was uh, hosted by um, our division chief, uh, Dr. Marcus, and then one of our adjunct faculty, Dr. Rosenfield. Uh, And this was kind of a a meeting of the minds in aesthetic surgery um, from people throughout the United States and abroad. Uh, And it's kind of a roundtable discussion format, really unique meeting, and just hearing these experts kind of bounce ideas off each other and challenge each other's opinions. And it was just a really unique and, and different way to learn and i think it's a, a format that, that's gonna uh, do well in the future and we may see adopted in other fields so i'm looking forward to it again next year uh it, it was really cool to see
1: and how have nights been going i know you're have another what another week or so and then you'll be done but you yeah. survived nights yeah it's been really good it's a it's a
0: really good balance of Some downtime to to get some research done, and then and then the busy nights are are awesome. The other night we did a really great case. We did a a myocutaneous trapezius flap, actually for a a spinal wound. Uh, So we may touch on that later in our discussion. (laughs) But it was awesome. Not maybe not something that we always get to do in the middle of the night, but this one just happened to work out that way. So I don't mind nights. um What what rotation uh, have you been on recently?
1: Uh, I was at the VA not too long ago, which you know is a little bit slower pace than. Being you know the main hospital, but it's nice because the cases are really your own and the tendings are there if you need them. But otherwise, lets you kind of come up with a plan and see the patients, work them up, and and operate. So I think it's a good experience. You know, for our rotation, it's PGY four and a PGY six there. So I think it's it's a fun rotation, and I'm glad we'll. Sounds like we'll have some new faculty there coming up. So I'm excited to see what the rotation becomes.
0: Yeah, I think it's only going to get better and better. It already sounds like an awesome opportunity. Um. All right, well, with that, let's, uh, let's move into kind of our topic for today. So like I said, we're going to be talking about the paraspinous flaps. Uh, and this is a, a flap that we commonly use for uh, spinal wounds and uh, spinal hardware coverage. Uh, a lot of times this is in patients that have had multiple spinal operations, uh, infections, or, or even uh, radiation or something that makes a, a, just a standard closure not feasible. Um, This is a really great simple option for a complex problem. It's a quick and straightforward dissection, um, but it's been shown to significantly improve wound complications uh, in these spinal closures. Uh, And there's also several variations of this flap, which I'm looking forward to talking to Dr. Poor about as well. Do you want to go into a little bit of the anatomy of the the flap and kind of the, the
1: regional anatomy? Sure. So big picture, the posterior trunk anatomy. So we'll go through the layers from superficial to deep or the skin, the subcutaneous tissues and the superficial fascia. And then beneath that, we have the superficial muscular envelope, which in the upper back cervical spine region is the trapezius. And then the lower back is the latissimus dorsi muscle. And then also comprising the superficial muscular envelope, you have the rhomboids and serratus posterior. And deep to these muscles is the perispinous muscles. And they're comprised of several different muscles. So from medial to lateral is the spinalis, longismus, and iliocostalis. Uh, These originate from the sacrum, the iliac crest, and spinous and transverse process of the lower vertebral levels insert on the superior spinous and transverse processes of the upper vertebra, the skull base, and the ribs. So overall, these muscles are Matheson High type 4 from the pedicle dorsal branch of intercostal vessels from the aorta. There are two parallel lines of perforators, a medial and a lateral row. And the muscle can survive on individual perforator, perforating vessels from either row. And then oftentimes the medial row is sacrificed by the spine surgeons, especially if a laminectomy is performed. And we'll get into this when we talk to Dr. Poor, but it's really important that there are these two different lines of perforators. Um, and when he talks about how he uses this muscle for spinal reconstruction. Nick, do you wanna talk a little uh-huh. bit about our typical uh, dissection for this flap? Yeah, let's do it.
0: So um, like I mentioned, there's a, a couple of different variations and additions to this flap that can improve its utility. Uh so when we think about our superficial dissection, like you mentioned, we have the trapezius or the latissimus overlying these paraspinus muscles. So when you're mobilizing this flap, you can either elevate these muscles off of the paraspinus in continuity with the skin and sub-Q, or they can be kind of separately dissected out and closed as an additional layer. I think I've I've seen probably both of these in, in some of our spinal cases. Um. You also can do things like fascial scoring. So the paraspinous muscles are covered by a layer of investing fascia, and you score this almost like a component separation on the uh, anterior aspect of the body when we're doing hernia repair. Um, you can score this three centimeters from the midline and allow these muscles to unfurl. Uh, and I've heard that uh, it opens up like an accordion. That's how some people describe it. Uh, this is also I'll be a lot of different options. See. See.
1: I like haven't seen the scoring <laughs> before. Uh, so I wonder if Dr. Poor uses that, but yeah, usually I think of that with like a gastroc, but we'll have to mm-hmm. see uh, how much he, he uses
0: that. Yeah. I, and I also heard about some of that on my uh, some of my way rotations. I remember a couple uh, attendings at Northwestern specifically were talking a, a lot about that. So huh. it's an interesting concept. And in terms of our closure, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we can try to eliminate the dead space and make sure we're getting a, a good closure at the midline. You can use figure of eight sutures. Uh, you can do a Lambert suture technique, or you can do tacking sutures uh, to kind of uh, bring those those layers together out laterally. And then there's also some aspects that I'm interested in talking to Dr. Poor about, about uh, post-operative management. Um using things like a Pravena vac uh, to decrease tension on the wound. Uh, and then kind of drain management is something that we we often discuss. Uh, so there's kind of a lot that goes into this flap. Like I said, it's um it's a, a relatively straightforward dissection. It's uh it's, uh, a very uh, versatile flap, and and uh, and I'm interested to hear what Dr. Poor has to say about it. Okay, now we're going to bring in our uh, guest, Dr. Poor. Uh, Dr. Poor received his uh, medical degree and PhD from Brown University. Uh, he completed his residency in plastic surgery at the University of Wisconsin, followed by a fellowship in microsurgery and research at the Bernard O'Brien Institute of Microsurgery in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Poor is now an associate professor of plastic surgery at the University of Wisconsin where he practices the full breadth of plastic surgery with an emphasis on breast reconstruction. He recently was featured as a guest faculty at the uh, 2022 Duke Flop Course, where he taught us about the paraspinal flaps, and we are thrilled to have him on the podcast today to discuss this topic. Dr. Porter, thank you so much for joining us.
2: I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. It ha- makes me happy to see the paraspinal flap getting some prime time.
1: <laughs> I know. It's kind exactly. of a flap that sometimes we see and we're like, oh, man, a back closure, but... Yeah. I feel like you're going to make it an exciting flap for us.
2: Good. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I sure like doing it. So thanks for having so, me on. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: Absolutely. And, and that's kind of how I want to start off. So um, at the flap course specifically, I remember your talk was awesome. And like Hannah said, you know, maybe this is a flap that gets overlooked sometimes, but your kind of enthusiasm for it and some of the variations that you talked about, I think everyone was, was really excited and engaged with your talk. Can you just tell us a little bit about you know, what you think about the paraspinous flaps, why you get excited about it and and kind of what you love about it so much.
2: Yeah, well, thanks, Nick. You know, I I really enjoyed uh, spending time with you all at at the Duke flap course, which is, as you know, is the premier uh, flap dissection course really in the world. It was incredible to be there. And I I was happy to talk about paraspinal flaps because I think it's one of these flaps that's incredibly useful uh, and it's frequently one of these, you know, operations are all oh, like you said, I have a back closure to do. I got to wait for ortho or the patients. But it's really exemplifies kind of the power of reconstructive surgery um, and the utility of it as, you know, we do surgery from head to toe, front to back. And it's really something that is very, very helpful for patients who are often struggling with really bad problems. I mean, imagine having an open spine, exposed hardware, radiation, tumor extirpation, all of these things, and, and it's really common. Um, and to be able to contribute to the care of those patients um, in a way that's uh, predictable, repeatable, successful, and and pretty fun is, is why I really like doing those cases.
1: That's great. Um- would you talk a little bit about your practice pattern in terms of spare, paraspinal flaps and you know how you get these patients? Are you seeing them kind of preoperatively, postoperatively, just in surgery or, or what that looks like?
2: Yeah. I, so we're, we're not an institution where they have plastics come in and close all of the spines uh, or, or spinal wounds. Um, but, you know, I made my, it's kind of like everything that we do if you make yourself available. And you do a good job and you're a team player people are going to call you and frequently these are end of the day um cases or you know not considered the most glamorous case and things like that but so i i made myself available really to do all sorts of stuff and you find that if you're uh, a team player and you work hard and you um, have good outcomes and the patients do well that you, you get called so typically for me, you know, I'm a uh, 100% reconstructive. I focus on microsurgery and breast, but do sort of every everything else that's necessary, like limb extremity reconstruction. And uh, the pattern has become is either uh, I'll have either ortho or neurosurgery call me and say, hey, I've got a really bad problem in clinic. This patient's had surgery four times. They have exposed hardware. They had a a tumor removed from their spinal column, and uh, they're in bad shape. And, and in that case, I see those patients in clinic. Uh, I talk to them about the operation, and we do it electively. The other uh, scenario is a patient's been in the hospital for you know several weeks with an infection and a wound back, and they they call and say, "Hey, we've got a a case where where we really need help." You know, I it's similar to the to the sternal wounds. It's kind of the same pattern. You know, there are patients who come in from uh, in the clinic, and then there's patients who you see in the hospital. And and it's very analogous. It's, you know, using muscles, moving a composite flap, muscle, skin, uh, obtaining closure, sealing. And it's one of these things where when you do the case, the patients just do really well and they start getting better quickly.
1: Yeah, no, it definitely can be a bad problem. And some of these patients, like you said, have been there for weeks or months and you know really need our help. Do you think
0: that, so You know, obviously not every back closure needs uh, uh, paraspinous flaps or plastic surgery intervention. Do you think there is a role in certain circumstances for prophylactic uh, paraspinous flaps or plastic surgery involvement in these cases?
2: Yeah, I think there is. I think in patients who have had radiation or are going to have radiation, uh, really you want to make sure that there's a really good closure. Um, and then other cases where there's gonna be a bigger resection and and dead space, well, I think that they're pro- prophylactically can be a really good thing uh, in terms of of closing. I don't think it's cost effective resource wise to have somebody there for every spine, um uh, but certainly on the complicated ones. and once you develop this relationship with your you know with your colleagues, they'll say, oh, I think we might need your help on this one. You know, this is it's routine, but there's such and such patients has been radiated, et cetera. Kind of like the the relationship with the uh, trauma surgeons. You know, I think I have a uh, free flap that's going to need to be done on this patient.
1: All right. So once we have a patient uh, who's going to get paraspinal flaps, can you walk us through of your case flow of when you come in the room? Uh, are you guiding the spine surgeon at all to maintain? any of the perforators and then just take us through kind of the dissection.
2: Yeah. Well, typically, you know, you, you, when I come in or I take one of these patients to the OR uh, it's well after the initial spine surgery, it might be a case of hardware removal and things like that. And I just say, do what you need to do and we'll fix it. Yeah. Uh, Because I don't want to get in the way of their, of what, what they're going to do. And the last thing I want them to do is not be, aggressive and worry about this and that. So I just say, do your thing, call me. If we're doing it at the same time, you know, frequently, if there's any question about the anatomy, uh, I will take those patients jointly with the spine surgeon because they really know kind of what's what and what's been removed and what's where. But what I do is um, I always go in and I always position the patient Um, And I prep and drape the patient because I find that, you know, the way we prep and drape is different than a lot of folks and we need real wide fields. And so I do all of that. And then then if they're going to debride, I say, go ahead and do your debridement. And then and then we come in and finish. And at that time, what I do is just like anything. I analyze the wound. I look at the the depth. Uh, I look and make sure there's no necrotic or dead or infected tissue and really kind of start planning in your, in your head or in my head, what we're going to need to do.
0: And then can you take us through uh, kind of just the the standard paraspinous elevation, kind of what are the steps in your mind? What are some of the maybe sticking points where you think, uh, you know, a resident or a uh, someone just starting out may get uh, you know, tripped up on something or maybe yes. some pearls that you have?
2: Yeah, that's a great, a great question. So first and foremost, I think I don't, I think at the Duke flap course, I showed a picture of an iceberg. These final wounds, it's like what you see on the outside is really the tip of the iceberg. There's a small, you know, frequently a small incision that's open or a small wound or one piece of hardware that's exposed. But really, when you open that up, it can be really extensive. So the first thing I, I suggest is make sure that you do a really good exposure. And op- don't just try to close a little tiny incision It open for a reason. There's no reason that's going to stay closed if you just close the skin again over it. Um, so I really always look for uh, extending the incision, et cetera, uh, just to make sure that we're seeing the, the full defect. And then once you do that, then, you know, the paraspinal muscle is a, is a Mathesonide type four muscle, meaning it has segmental blood supply. And and it's intercostal based. So they're the perforators from the intercostals. uh, So there's one at every, um, you know, at at every level. And then on top of that, this, the intercostal comes up and gives off two perforators. So it it has, you know, it has segmental blood supply. And then within that segment, there's two, two potential options. So for somebody like me, that's great because it's hard to kill.
0: <laughs> you know,
2: and and typically you'll read in the text doing a turnover flap where you divide everything laterally and then flip it over right. um on itself. In my hands, that is not a good idea. That's like doing a turnover pec flap for sternal reconstruction. Like that doesn't get you much. And in fact, when they do the dissection, um to do their instrumentation, their hardware, their cages, the spinous processes, typically they've already elevated the paraspinal flaps off of the, off the transverse processes. And because of that, that perforator that's right, the medial perforator is often compromised. So I don't ever divide and cut way lateral and then try to flip it over because, you know, I, I, I don't think that that has the most reliable blood flow. So what I do is I typically just um, get an elevator and a bobe and I start, you know, there's three muscles that comprise the paraspinal muscles. And I just start scooping, literally scooping them off of that, uh, you know, the junction of the transverse and the um, the spinal process. I lift it off of the the transverse process. And in doing so, you can kind of, you can kind of dissect and move the muscles as much as you need to, okay? So you release, see how much you get, release, see how much you get, release, see how much you get. Until you've really released, you can go way out. And then one other trick is I do not elevate big skin flaps because if you elevate big skin flaps, you're just creating another area of dead space. Cause really the the closure here is gonna be the muscle and then we can deal with the skin separately, which we'll talk about. But I will elevate it enough to find the fascia. Cause once you divide that fascia that runs on the paraspinal muscles, you can really get much more mobility.
1: How much do you think you get from uh, scoring the fascia?
2: You can get maybe centimeter, two centimeters. Right. I mean, you can get quite a bit. And really this is not, um you want to get enough tissue to re- or enough muscle to really get within to get the the back closed and potentially get some in the in the dead space there's a lot of dead space I'll talk about that in a minute but but it's not like you need a massive mobilization you know you just need enough to bring them over to the midline and and potentially imbricate themselves atop one another uh, to get some some fill once you do that and you figure out, okay, um, I've got enough uh, released, then it's a matter of closing. To close, I put in uh, two drains, one below and one above. There's one exception where I don't do that, but one below and one between the skin. Um, And I close the muscle with like an OPDS. I typically don't use vitriol in these cases. PDS seems to work pretty well. And the important point about the drains, one, be careful not to sew them in.
1: Yeah, I don't think we've ever done that before.
2: <laughs> I did that no, once. Never, never, oh,
1: we've done that many times. I've seen <laughs>
2: yeah. it. <done> <laughs> I did that once and it was very unpleasant. It was a patient who actually didn't like me very much. So it was it was uh, a bad conversation. Yeah. Um, sew the drain in. So it, you have to plan on these drains being in for upwards, sometimes weeks. And that's something one you have to tell patients about before surgery, like look, the drains are one of the most important things we're going to do here. and we got to control dead space. we got to control fluid because fluid means infection and it means uh, drainage and it means uh, broken uh, um, open wound. So control that dead space. I bring the drains out very laterally so they're not laying directly on them. And again, I put one below the muscle and one above the muscle. There's a good paper. Um, I think it was in Annals of Plastic Surgery by Holtman, and it talks about the use of drains and, and gives some nice diagrams of of how to actually elevate these flaps. One other point I'll make is frequently uh, I'll get a consult and they will say, this is going to be really hard because I've already elevated the paraspinal flap now. Their definition of elevating a flap is different than our definition of elevating a flap. So I usually say, "Yeah, that's awesome. We'll just see what we can do," you know. And then we go in, and 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 very infrequently will it be will it be trouble?
1: What do you do with like the trapezius or Are you closing those muscles as well, or just elevating those with skin?
2: Usually, they're just elevated with skin, and okay. they they they're frequently retracted they don't really give you very good bulk. They're typically not very big muscles, especially on somebody like myself. Uh, and there's just, you know, it's, it's not a great uh, option. It, it, and actually, if you look at sort of spinal, traditional spinal reconstruction, you look at uh, all the segments of the spine and the different options, on every one of those segments, unless it's really high C-spine, paraspinal muscles is an option. And so I just use what works and what's easy. Now, one the the other nice thing about paraspinal muscles is that because they're segmental, you can treat them like you would a sartorius, right? You can actually just divide the muscle group and elevate it on those perforators proximally. And I've elevated, you know, two, three segments. And then you can actually move this muscle as you would to cover an exposed uh, vascular graft, et cetera, and and you can move that and you can dunk it down into dead space. Um, I've used this for CSF leaks; it works great. Um, you can use it to fill dead space in multiple situations, and and you can do you can release one proximally, one distally, and flip them over next to one another, and you can get some really, really good bulk and really good closure. And it, for whatever reason, it just does not really affect these patients very much functionally. Because remember, there's a lot of muscles that run up and down the back. So okay. in the case, let me add one thing. In the case of a uh, CSF leak, you've got to be really careful with drains. Okay. You definitely don't want to put a drain under the muscles. And if you put one above you just want it for a couple days, because if you overdrain these patients, they will have a big problem. And I've made that mistake once and, and won't we'll do it again.
0: So we, we talked a little bit about kind of some of uh, almost like a stepwise approach. If we can't get our muscles together at the midline, we can do our fascial scoring. And then you talked about kind of our uh, dividing the muscle and rotating, which I thought was you know one of the most interesting parts of your talk and uh, dissection at the course. And Hannah and I were just talking before you came on. And that's something we definitely want to try over here. How about uh, options for skin closure? If we have good co- cover of our hardware um, with our with our muscle flaps, but we still, the skin is tight, we're having difficulty closing.
2: Yeah. So frequently, um, this is a problem because this skin, you know, these are patients who have been operated on multiple times. Their skin is retracted. They've had a vac on frequently for a long time, um, or they've had radiation and they just don't have really good, you know, mobility of the skin. Um, In that case, uh, what we do is I typically will do bilateral V to Y flaps. And um, as I demonstrated at the course, you can make you you, what you want to do is you basically design the flaps and you have to make them big, really big. If you make them really tiny, you're just not going to get enough movement and you cut Your V's, you cut all the way down. You can go through the fascia if you need to. Uh, And then you basically create bilateral island flaps like you would a keystone or something until, and again, I grab the edges and I start moving it and I cut more and I elevate more. You can spy if you want, you know, and do something to look at the vasculature. But typically these are pretty work or Doppler perforator. These are typically very well perfused. And, you know, we, I've done a bunch of these now, and and it works really, really well. You close the V component first to create the Y, and then you start working the flaps in, and you can get centimeters of closure. And any time there's a question of, boy, is this going to be a tenuous closure? I mean, we're there to close the back, right? You don't want to do something you don't think is going right. to work. So, you know, if you're thinking this is tight, this has been rate, just make the cuts. And once you do it, you'll, you'll realize, wow, this is really effective and it works very, very well.
1: And you had mentioned the paraspinal flaps are pretty reliable, kind of all different levels. And even if they have, you know, quote unquote elevated them before, but in cases where, you know, patients have had multiple operations, radiation, do you ever find that they're just not robust and do you have a backup plan if, if it's really not working?
2: Yeah, I've had a couple times where I've had to use a combination of latissimus muscle as much as I could uh, with, you know, one paraspinal, unilateral paraspinal flap. First of all, I always do bilateral, but, you know, it's if one is gone or there's some problem. I've also... You know used a combination of different flaps i've never done a free flap for the back i mean that's really hard in terms of recipient vessels <laughs> but i've really only had a you know maybe one or two occasions where it was kind of like Ooh, i don't know if this is going to work okay um theoretically you could you know bring something from anteriorly omentum something like that like that would be really complicated i'd make i'd keep it easy and if you can if you can get any kind of muscle, and you can start being real creative, and say, "Hey, I got this piece of muscle, this piece of muscle," and you can get enough to fill in these defects pretty effectively.
1: Yeah, that's good to hear. We've done one not too long ago. Free flop and involved AV loops and all sorts of things. Oh, brutal. It was, it I mean, brutal! sometimes
2: you have to do it. Sometimes you have to do it. I would never say never. I have thankfully have never had to. But.
0: Yeah, this, this was yeah. heroic yeah. case. So. Do you have a? Uh, in the cervical spine, is there a level kind of threshold um, where you think that something like a myocutaneous trapezius flap would work better than a paraspinous flap?
2: Absolutely. I mean, if you're really high on the, on the, in the C-spine level, um, like almost just below the octopus, you're going to need something else. Um, That being said, I've done mid C-spine level, you know, C3, a lot of trouble, uh, including B to Y flaps. But if you're really high, I think trapezius and or you know like even a lat or it, something like that is actually not a bad idea.
0: Yeah, we had a we had a case recently of a probably mid C spine wound, and uh, we were debating between the the bilateral Vys and the myotendinous trapezius. And I, yeah. I was interested to see if you had done the the Vys up a little bit higher, and it sounds like that that works there as well.
2: It does, it oh. definitely does.
1: And then after closure, do you use, uh, at least at Duke, we use a Provena for like five days. is pretty much what we do in all of our closures, but it can be tough to take off and patients don't love it. What do you use for dressings?
2: I am pretty traditional. And I, you know, I I have just started using a Provena on my abdominal closures for my deep flaps. Okay. And I don't know if it's, I just kind of Without having the experience of doing it myself, and I I don't, I don't know how that's going to pan out. Um, I think it's difficult on the back because they're laying on it. I think with a good closure and an island dressing for 24 hours until it, you know, starts to to be safe to take that off. I that's kind of typically what I would do. But if is uh, not going to hurt, certainly
1: it just hurts the residents when it starts beeping.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> the Provenas can run out of them can run out of juice pretty quickly. Yes. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, All right, well, I think that's all of our clinical questions. I just got a a quick uh, bonus question or two for you. Um, Perfect.
2: Love bonus.
0: (laughs) Bonus question, best part of the interview. Um, So you obviously have a really unique uh, research background, specifically in the study of bird flight and wing anatomy. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how your understanding of evolutionary biology and anatomy shapes the way you think about plastic surgery and and kind of our reconstructive approach to problems.
2: That is a great question. Yeah, I had the privilege of of working with really one of the pioneers of uh, bird flight mechanics and evolutionary biology in graduate school. His name was Ted Goslow, and this guy was incredible. He has done a lot. He's retired now, but he really moved the whole field of evolution forward significantly. And what we were studying was the anatomy of the shoulder and, and how the shoulder uh, in birds has adapted to allow for flight. There are a lot of Applications, uh, in terms of really understanding the anatomy in something like a bird and a human, because as we know from evolution, anatomy is pretty conserved. And really, you know, my training as a grad student was really in anatomy and understanding the anatomy, a comparative anatomy, and that it helped me a lot in terms of moving my direction, the needle towards really a field that involved anatomy and that's how I ended up doing plastics and kind of a fun spinoff is uh when I was I think I was a chief resident or maybe a first-year faculty member somebody asked me you know the classic plastic surgery question um is it possible to reconstruct the arm into a wing and I thought about that and, and uh using my um, knowledge of wing anatomy and shoulder anatomy. And I wrote a paper on it and I proposed the steps, step one, deal with the hand, uh, (laughs) wrist fusion tissue expansion to get enough skin for, you know, the expanded muscles from the shoulder to the, to the wrist, et cetera. And I like went through all the steps. And then of course, at the end said, you know, this is, this is possible, but you know, it's something that really brings up, a. uh, the ethical question about what we should be doing, what we can do. And, and I published that in the journal of hand Surgery, my first paper where I was this only author and uh, really proud of it. And then uh, the thing went viral. It was crazy. That's and, awesome. and, and it started, uh, it was picked up by the radical body modification crowd. Oh my God. They were like, Oh my wow. gosh, this guy's amazing. He's <laughs> constructing arms into wings in Wisconsin did you get calling, some weird calls calling and emailing <laughs> saying i want wings when can i come to wisconsin so so that was kind of a fun spin off of it but it's it helped me think about function uh, in a very different way thinking about function of the wing function of the shoulder and really translating that to humans and there's a lot of of you know it's a very homologous uh, system uh, across species. And it's, 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 it's really helped me become a better plastic surgery to kind of understand that anatomy.
0: That's really interesting to hear about. And, uh, I think all of us find plastic surgery in one way or another, because we love anatomy so much. Um, and I actually, in terms of your paper, I remember hearing whispers of a question that was floating around the interview trail about how would you make a wing? And I, I, one of your, uh, residents, uh, had told me about your papers. So that was good prep material for, uh, for yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was a really fun thing. So,
1: well, just the last question for you. Um, a lot of our listeners are, you know, young microsurgeons or residents and uh, those that are interested in a career in microsurgery, do you have any advice for folks of, um, you know, how to get started or, or really anything?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think one, find a good mentor, um somebody that is gonna is going to help you kind of understand one what the field is about is going to help you make connections and is going to uh help you kind of down that road of becoming a microsurgeon it's a challenging field it's really incredibly fun and rewarding as you guys know but it can also be pretty complicated so having uh support as a mentor and also as partners uh, is really important because, you know, it's uh, it's not a solo game in any way. It's a team team sport, and, and you need to have uh, a really good team. In terms of just getting started, it, you know, I always say keep an open mind. Microsurgery allows you to do so much. I was very interested in microsurgery because I was mainly interested in hand. It goes back to the bird wing. Um And but when I when I did my fellowship and then came back to Wisconsin, really realized that I love breast reconstruction. I had no idea. You know, when I was a resident, I'd really understand it very well. And and now I do about 90 percent of my cases or 80 percent are are, uh, micro breast cases. Um, And and I never thought that that was going to happen. And that's because I just kept an open mind Um, and I found opportunities that would allow me, you know, when I did my fellowship, I didn't just want to do a micro fellowship where I did a gazillion free flaps. I really wanted to do research as a part of my career. So I picked a, a, a fellowship that would allow me to do that, which was really valuable for me. And, and then I think really just, you know, develop uh, the other thing that has kept me really interested and engaged in our field is developing a research interest in a research component, because, man, that is really exciting. when You start thinking of problems and you can research them and publish papers and give talks and, and then and then and then practice and teach others, you know, and if you put all that together, it's an incredible, incredible career.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. I, I've learned a lot and I'm excited to kind of take some of these tips for our, our back closures. We we have a lot of them. So I think this will be useful for, for our listeners.
2: Yeah. yeah, well, thank you. Thank you both very much for uh, the great conversation. It was really a pleasure to, to join. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Nutrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.